The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Monday, April 11th, 2022. From Peachfish Productions, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Virus, variant, dominant. These words are arresting. We can't look away when the news tells you that BA2 is here and it knows how to evade your immune system. CBS This Morning, though not this morning, has more. A fast-spreading coronavirus subvariant threatens to bring yet another surge in COVID cases here to America. The subvariant called BA2 is more contagious than the original Omicron variant, and it is rapidly spreading in parts of Asia and Europe. Now, the emphasis that you heard there, BA2 is more contagious than the original Omicron variant, should be actually BA2 is more contagious than the original Omicron variant, because This is also an Omicron variant. The original Omicron variant was, you guessed it, BA1. The hint of threat was there in that CBS report competing with Pleasant Morning Show Music. But in this report from KTVB, Idaho, they know enough not to say that it is alarming, but they also note it could be alarming. Doug, while we aren't seeing an alarming uptick in COVID cases, so to speak, experts worry that could be in Idaho's future because unfortunately BA2, this subvariant, is even more contagious than the rest of the variants that we have yet to see. Doug maintained his cool not so with this WJXT Jacksonville anchor who tried to shoehorn a scary nickname into coverage. Didn't catch on. A subvariant of Omicron known as BA2 or Stealth Omicron is spreading faster and causing more severe illness than Omicron infectious disease specialists say the variant is here in the United States and it's already the dominant strain in several countries. I heard that Christopher Walken takes out a pen and eliminates all punctuation on a script, thus giving him that unique style. We sort of heard that there. More severe illness than Omicron infectious disease. Okay, some facts, some cooling, soothing facts. There is always going to be a dominant variant. Just because it's dominant doesn't mean it's worse or deadlier. I suppose the implication is, wait, if it can dominate Delta, imagine what it'll do to you. But this one isn't as severe as Delta. And Omicron was milder than past variants. And this one is within the realm from what we're seeing now. Could be a little less mild, but should be about as mild as Omicron. And Omicron, by the way, if you had it, gives you a lot of immunity for this one. Oh, and thank God the whole stealth variant thing never took off. I do think this shows there's a tension between the way we get people to pay attention to news. Headlines, subhead, grab you, surprise you, shake you out of your complacency. It's not just the shock value or, depending on the medium, the clickbait impetus. It's a real concern that if the news isn't frightening, maybe it's not new. Maybe it's not notable. Well, this variant is notable, though it is kind of odd news. It's notable that this variant exists, though it's not really that different from the last one. In fact, if you caught BA1, like I said, you are well protected from BA2. It's not that there's nothing to worry about. It's more like the thing to worry about is a very close cousin of the last thing to worry about. The news should cover it like a light dusting of snow in Boston, not like they cover a light dusting of snow in Atlanta. There is the public radio way of communicating this, which is to just not care at all if the news is interesting to listeners. I mean, you portray it and present it 
competently and accurately, but the whole, do I have your attention now? That's never considered. There is a way to get people's attention and not to hype it or scare things or invent a nickname. Here's a good example of that. K-I-N-G, King, Seattle. Let's talk about the pandemic. The CDC says it's no more dangerous than any other, any other variant or subvariant, but BA2, the subvariant of Omicron, is now the dominant COVID strain in the country and here in Washington state. It's just the presentational order, whereas most of the clips we played said something like, there's a new, different, rapidly spreading variant. That isn't that worrisome. This one says, while not particularly worrisome, there is a new variant that's rapidly spreading. I think much better. And remember, please, as I know, I don't even have to tell you, my listeners, that all these statements and risks about how mild it is or how severe it is and severity, it's premised on the idea that you've been vaccinated. For the unvaccinated, the risks are dramatically higher and warrant that dramatic tone of voice. Of course, that was true with Omicron, that was true with Delta, that was true with all the other variants, and none of that convinced the vax-resistant. And if those waves didn't make an impression, I doubt that this one will either. On the show today, I spiel about French elections and Marine Le Pen. Her de-diabolicization sounds so much better in French. But first, 40 years ago, the term AIDS was proposed in a meeting of CDC and gay leaders. Previously, GERD, gay-related immune deficiency, was the name of the illness that was sweeping through the gay community, but other populations as well. So much was not known in the beginning how to acquire it, how to prevent it, if it was even real. From the original production team behind Slow Burn, host Leon Nafak is back with a new season of his award-winning podcast, Fiasco. This one is called Fiasco, The AIDS Crisis, and Leon joins me next. The podcast fiasco is, for my money, which, you know, is like $15.99 a month, the best history podcast of its form. I would say if you want talking about the Mongols for three hours at a clip, Dan Carlin's Hardcore History, that's my jam. But if you want tightly reported, excellently sourced, clear narrative, Leon Nafak, the original host of Slow Burn, has been doing the series fiasco for now five seasons. His fifth season is out now. Uh, at the end, we'll summarize all his previous four seasons. I couldn't like this podcast or Leon more, and the new one is a little bit different from some of his past topics, which have dealt with more politics, explicitly political issues. This new series is all about AIDS in America from a historical, but also a medical and political perspective. Leon joins me now. Hey, Leon, how are you? Hey, Mike. Great to be here. It is a little different, right? I mean, it seems it seems that when I saw it first in my feed or when you told me about it, I didn't say, oh, that makes sense. That's the logical next step for a fiasco po podcast. Yeah, I think it's it's uh, it's a different shape of a story, right? We've in the past, uh, dating back to when we did Slow Burn, we we took on these pretty self-contained 
scandals like Watergate and then the Clinton impeachment. And more recently with, with Fiasco, you know, we started with the uh, Bush v. Gore election uh, and then we did Iran-Contra. Most recently we did Benghazi. Uh, you know, the AIDS crisis is not uh, a story with a very clear beginning and end. Um, I guess it, I guess the beginning is pretty clear, but certainly we realized that there was no obvious ending and, and, and it doesn't um, lend itself to quite the same kind of TikTok that we tried to, uh, you know, conjure with, with some of our earlier work. Um, it's much, much more sprawling. Right. When you, when I think of AIDS, maybe the first word that doesn't come to mind is scandal. So to report on it as a scandal is, I mean, there are certainly scandalous elements to how it was treated in the beginning, but reporting on it as it is a scandal steered you in which directions? So we've always been most interested in uh, how people made decisions in the moment, right? With every one of our seasons, we've always sort of tried to zero in on um, how people uh, operated within uncertainty and and without complete information. Uh, I, you know, when you're doing a history podcast, one of your one of your perils is that everyone knows how the thing turns out, right? With Nixon, everyone knew that. Um, he left office in disgrace. And you sort of have to compensate for that by somehow injecting your telling of the story with some urgency or some some sense of propulsion and 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 um tension. You know. Tension. What's the tension? Yes. Exactly. Yes. Tension. Yeah. And so and so by sort of trying to put ourselves back in the minds of people who were um, processing all this in real time before they knew everything like we know now, um, before they had the benefit of hindsight. You end up being able to kind of recreate that tension, that urgency, um, and then I think it also gives you a, a, an insight into like why things turned out the way they did. Like that's our overall goal always with these seasons is like why did things turn out the way they did? Um, why was something a fiasco? Um, and so it's a it's a scandal in that um, people made a lot of bad decisions. And, and our goal and, and intention is 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 never to like scold anyone for making the wrong choice or, or making a bad decision um, or failing to to meet the moment. Our hope is just to like explain how it happened. So you say our job is not to scold and maybe the listeners would say, okay, maybe they're not trying to scold the medical community who clearly didn't do enough uh, the political community who, you know, you could shame everyone from Ronald Reagan to Ed Koch and activists did. But early on, you also point out, and this really does help to get the listener in the mindset that, yeah, mistakes were made on all sides, that even the people who were suffering, afflicted by what would be known as AIDS, they made some bad assumptions. Before it was known that HIV, forget those letters, but it was a virus that caused it, there were theories of what was causing this and how to prevent it that were maybe self-serving among some of the really sympathetic characters that you follow. Like there was this one theory that you could only get it not just from one contact, but it would have to take thousands and thousands of contacts and only the most promiscuous people in the gay community were getting it. And you talk about that. Yeah. So there, there, was, a, there was a doctor in New York named Joseph Sonnabend, um, who was convinced of a theory that, that became known as the multifactorial theory, which was basically that AIDS was a condition that resulted in an accumulation of exposures and damages to one's immune system. You know, as we talk about in, in, in the show, like 
post-gay liberation in cities, you know, like New York and San Francisco, it was a new era in terms of how much sex people were having with how many people, you know, it was, it was, people were free for the first time in, in this, in these places during this time. And, you know, that, that led to a scene, you know, a social scene where, where people were having a ton of risky sex, uh, and they were getting a lot of different diseases. You know, before AIDS came along, people were getting hepatitis. They were getting gonorrhea. They were getting, every, you know, every everything under the sun. And there was kind of a, you know, cottage industry of, of doctors who, who treated people for this, for this, for these kinds of infections. Joseph Sonnabend was one of them. And he became, you know, absolutely certain that it was this, you know, repeated, uh, these repeated run-ins with, with these, with all these uh, diseases that were destroying people's immune systems, and you know his his takeaway from that was that gay men in these urban centers needed to have sex differently, or they needed to have less of it. You know, they they he believed that the answer was changing behavior so that people weren't as promiscuous and were having safer sex. And in a way, that was good advice, right? But the premise of the advice was wrong. Sonnabend was very skeptical of the idea that AIDS was caused by a virus, uh, and he was skeptical of that idea, you know, for a lot longer than some other people. And I think, as we say in the show, like, for that reason, he, he has somewhat an uneasy place in, in AIDS history. Um, you know, people connect him to strains of AIDS denialism um, because he was he was so resistant to the idea that AIDS was caused by a virus. And the sociology of the gay community then was an interesting one, and it wasn't the Village Voice. I was always thought that the Village Voice was just the newspaper Gay Liberation, but it wasn't. It was another magazine called The Native, is that? Yeah, The New York Native. Yeah, and that's where a lot of these this reporting and these arguments played out. And to make the argument uh, for people within the gay community to make the argument that we have to adjust our behavior, again, in retrospect, it seems the most logical and obvious thing in the world at the time. And you really paint the picture so we understand it was fraught and controversial and not always well received. Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of people who were reading the New York Native and who were reading some of the early coverage, you know, there were these two, in particular, these two activists, uh, uh, Michael Callan and Richard Berkowitz, you know, the two two of the first AIDS activists ever. Um, Michael Callan died. Um, Richard Berkowitz is still with us, and we were able to interview him. You know, the two of them were patients of Dr. Sonnabend, the, the doctor I was just talking about, and um, they were like his his. They, 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 Berkowitz called him his personal Moses. You know, he took all of his cues from him, and and they sort of took his ideas about the multifactorial theory and the steady erosion of people's immune systems, and they and they and they turned it into advice for their fellow gay men. And so they wrote this article called "We Know Who We Are" uh, for the New York Native, in which they uh, you know tried to sort of level with their readers and said, "Look, we're we're sluts like you." <laughs> you know, that was the word they used. Yeah. They did, they did it in the Argo, in the, uh, you know, they were talking to an audience and they knew how to talk to that this audience because they were part of this audience. So they didn't mince any words. They were trying to effectively communicate. But what, you know, what did they say? Yeah. And what they, and what they said was uh, this era of promiscuity is, is leading us to extinction and we need to change what we're doing. And, you know, this was, this was not well received by a lot of people who felt like it was a call for, you know, abstinence, an end to uh, gay liberation. You know, gay, gay liberation was obviously about more than just sex, but sex was a big part of it. I mean, it, it, for a lot of people, and it, it, it was it was core to the whole idea of, of freedom was that you could have sex with whoever you wanted and as much as you wanted in whatever way you wanted. And here were these guys coming in and saying, um, you know, that the party's over. And and that was that was not something everyone was ready or eager to hear. 
I think all except one of your past seasons have been about uh, American political scandals with generally straight white men at the center, although you do a good job of highlighting characters, say, in Watergate, who we might not have uh, known about during Slow Burn. Then you did the season on Boston school busing. So that, of course, has race at the center. But in this one, there's so much really frank talk that would resonate I assume within the gay community, I mean, when I hear gay people, certain kind of queer people talking, this is the language they use, but I also know it's very much different from what I think you would normally be comfortable with in your own life, although you have to be a reporter. So my question is, how much did the who gets to tell the story and how they tell it issue come up when you were reporting this and executing your reporting? Yeah, um, it's something that we obviously are, are, are aware of every time we make a season, you know, sort of trying to be conscious of like our perspective on these events that sometimes have nothing to do with us. You know, our solution to that is just to talk to people that we are, you know, talk to, talk to as many people as we can, both in terms of interviewing the people that are at the center of the story and who were most directly affected by it, and also seeking counsel, you know, from, from, from listeners who we trust and um, who can point out blind, blind spots to us. Um, I like am a believer in the idea that, you know, any story is fair game for anybody um, as long as it's done right. Uh, I think, you know, we, yeah, we absolutely faced a similar kind of question with this season as we did with the Boston uh, desegregation season, which is that, you know, we're talking about minority communities here. Um, I'm not a member of that community. Uh, and I think again, like we, we, we try to solve for that by, by be, being extremely open-minded um, and, and making a very aggressive attempt to um, step out of our own sort of subjectivity and really give the floor to the people we're interviewing. You know, like I'm, I'm not the main event in this series. You know, I'm, I'm the narrator. Um, but the reason it's good is because of the people we talk to. The reason like the reason that this, this stuff comes alive is not because I'm narrating it. I try to minimize as much as I can you know, the narration in the, in the show. I mean, there's a lot of it. And I think there's probably, uh, it's pretty dense informationally um, compared to maybe some other podcasts. But um, the best parts are the ones where you hear someone who's not me describing what this was like for them, what they were thinking, what they were feeling, what they saw, what they were there for, you know. And I think as long as we, as long as that's, that's, that's at the forefront, um, I feel like the show can speak to, you know, many different audiences. When you report out a story like this, you make a list of who you'd like to speak with. What percentage of that list was no longer alive? People who, gay people who lived through AIDS in the early 80s. I don't know a number, but I mean, it's, uh, it's, it, 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 it was just a, an impossibly, it was an unfathomable ratio of people who, who, were, who were gone by the time, you know, we entered the post-triple cocktail era. Um, we talked to one person, um, Val Bias, who uh, who died, you know, a couple months after our interview. Um, Val Bias uh, was a person with hemophilia, um, and he got HIV through a blood transfusion. Um, and yeah, I mean, it, it was uh, it was a reminder that like the people we got to talk to, we were lucky to get them. You know, it, it, we're always aware that like we're we're capturing people's testimony. Um, sometimes not long before it will be impossible to capture it. So that's part of, certainly part of the motivation here. We want to get to people before they're gone. As you know, your production company is Prologue Projects. And so I 
when I talk about the history shows I like, I always mention your company, your shows, and I say, you have to remember, it's prologue projects. The past is prologue. They don't hit you over the head with it, but the reason they choose topics or the reason, if you're, even if you're not realizing, the reason it resonates is because we, we can't help but putting it through the filter of the present. That's why these particular podcasts really work, plus the skill and execution of you and your team. But was the pandemic the prologue for the AIDS series? And to what extent did you want to, as you, you always have this choice to make, did you want to intentionally hit those notes? And to what extent did you just want uh, the present to, you know, we're all imbued with the present, so they're going to happen naturally? Yeah. You know, I I um, think I sort of took it for granted uh, when we did Slow Burn 1 and 2, how important it was that those stories sort of rhymed with the moment in which they came out. I obviously knew that people were picking up on resonances and parallels uh, when they listened to the story of Richard Nixon while living through Donald Trump. Um, it was that, that was clearly happening. But I think as we picked topics for fiasco, um, we weren't always thinking about that first and foremost. You know, so like Bush v. Gore, um, I forget exactly when it came out. I think it was like early 2019. Um, there wasn't some like obvious resonance that we were mining, you know, in that series. We ended up re-releasing it closer to uh, the 2000 uh, to the to the 2020 election, and I think we got some mileage out of that because, as it turned out, especially like the aftermath of that election, had a lot if not in common with what happened after 2000 and at least was clearly influenced by by those events. Um, anyway, that's all to say that I've now sort of come to think it's uh, quite important to, to, to choose topics with an eye towards their relevance to the present moment because I think what people get out of our podcasts, you know, at their best is a way to process whatever's happening around them right now um, by by absorbing and trying to understand a totally different, separate fact pattern, right? Like people were, I think, grateful to have a way to think about Trump through Nixon um, without hearing Trump's name every five seconds. They were getting a, a new chunk of raw material that was like informative and um, spoke to the, to the moment, um, but it wasn't the same chunk that they'd been, you know, being force fed every day through the news. Um, and so with with the AIDS crisis, yeah, I mean, we absolutely were thinking about COVID when we decided to undertake this. Leon Nafak is the co-founder of Prologue Projects. He's the host of Fiasco, the new season of Fiasco. Fiasco, the AIDS crisis, is on audible.com right now. It's an Audible original. Thanks so much, Leon. Thanks, Mike. And now the spiel. In the French presidential election, Emmanuel Macron got 27.6% of the vote, compared to 23.4% for Marine Le Pen. And I will drop attempts to do proper French pronunciations from this point forward. Macron was polling right about there for a while in the uh, high to mid-20s. He got a pop into the 30s thanks to his handling of the war. I don't know exactly how he quote-unquote handled the war. He did engage in a lot of public diplomacy and shuttling back and forth to talk to Putin and 
so forth, but he landed in the 27% range for the runoff. Marine Le Pen, she got a higher percent of the vote than she has ever gotten before, and that's notable for a couple reasons. Like everywhere else in the world, France has experienced over Macron's five years of presidency unrest, pandemic, now a war in Europe, and incumbents have been backfooted. And Le Pen has undertaken some specific efforts at de-demonization or de-diabolicization. Huh? What? What's that word? Well, you know, diabolic in French, it's something like de-diabolization. And the reason that she had to exercise the demon is that she is the daughter of the devil. What? What you say? Yes. That happens to be how her father, Jean-Marie Le Pen, has been portrayed and his nickname, the devil of the republic. Marine has learned to relax a little bit for debates. I mean, it's great if you're relaxed, if your debating points are still very anti-immigrant and headscarves in public. So that is, of course, a triumph of style. But it seems to have worked. She seems more appealing to the French public. She also changed the name of her party. It used to be the National Front when it was founded by Jean-Marie. She has changed it to the National Rally Front bellicose and restive, rally, bubbly, and festive. And that all seems to have worked some. She also very much has split with her father. Last time around in 2017, she said she had. People wondered if it was true. But now reports are out that the two really hate each other, that Maureen was heartbroken not to be invited to her father's wedding. He remarried at 92. And the daddy devil the daddy Dide Boulezéchon and the daughter of the devil really seem to have split. Another important aspect of the Dide Boulezéchon has been talking about how she's a single mom and talking about her cats. I've read about 30 articles about her cats here, dutifully reported by the BBC. So what would her France look like? Well, she seems to have picked up a lot of support recently by presenting this softer image. She's been talking about how she's a single mum, the fact that she loves cats. Oh, it's not just that she likes them. Her six cats, she says, will be her only companions in the presidential palace if she gets elected. And she's been picking fights with rivals further to the right. One dismissed her liking of the cats, saying, well, he likes books. It all seems silly, but it is light years more effective than Jean-Marie Le Pen's attempts to moderate his image on the public stage. I mean, he once called the Holocaust a detail, a detail of Hitler's agenda. And before a trial for hate speech, Jean-Marie did interviews where he attempted to walk back anti-gay slurs. And that walk back included statements like, quote, As long as homosexuals do not touch the fly of my trousers or of my grandchildren, and they do not walk down the Champs-Élysées with a feather in their ass, I do not care. That is daddy devil. The D-devil daughter has a bit more sense than that and a bit more than a fighting chance to actually win the presidency. Head-to-head polls have Macron up by six to eight points, and he did outperform the polls in 2017 in his runoff against Marine Le Pen. Back then, the pollster Ipsos found that the vote of the socialist politician Jean-Luc Mélenchon went 50% 
to Macron in the runoff and 40% to no one in the runoff. And Mélenchon was the third biggest vote getter with about 20% of the vote this time out, a little bit better than he did last time. So generally, if the reapportionment from general to runoff adheres to the patterns of 2017, Macron will win. But this is a strange time. Le Pen is a different candidate, and the war in the economy will weigh heavily on voters' minds. Macron's supporters also point out they didn't really campaign in the weeks before the election, maybe just a week before or a few days before. He preferred to let his statesmanship speak for itself, flying to and from Russia to meet with Putin. And at the same time, pictures emerged of Le Pen shaking hands and smiling with Putin. She had to apologize for that and talk excessively about how against the war and horrified by Putin she was. So the thinking goes, if Macron has a lead without really talking about the election, imagine the impact of campaigning will have. And I say, yeah, well, imagine it. It could be that he turns the race into a referendum on his incumbency rather than into a vote against Le Pen. And that could spell trouble, especially if the newly laundered single mom with a family and personal history of xenophobia comes across two French voters more as an adorable cat lady than a potential catastrophe. And that's it for today's show. Corey War is the assistant producer of The Gist. Joel Patterson is the senior producer of The Gist. Michelle Pesca is Peachfish Productions' chief feline handler. The Gist is produced in collaboration with Libsyn's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to advertisecast.com slash thegist. Oomperu depperu duperu, and thanks for listening. <laughs>